All right, welcome to the Sweet Science of Fighting podcast. Today, we have Nick Fury. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. Excited uh, to be here. <laughs> yeah, thank you for coming on. So, we met, obviously, at Jiu-Jitsu with you taking the uh, positional sparring class there, but do you want to maybe dive into a brief background about yourself for the listeners? Uh, yeah, I've been... Uh involved in like physical culture culture that's kind of what i'm calling it now physical culture <laughs> yeah since i was a kid you know just running jumping and foraging and sometimes running amok and and then uh that uh translated later in life into uh training in the gym and then getting deeper into that and uh into coaching and now i'm like 15 almost 20 years in the coaching and I've done all kinds of things in between in the coaching space and martial arts, but uh, lately my focus, or recently my focus in coaching and um, strength and conditioning and nutrition um, was uh, on fighters. And so that's a little bit about my background. Um, right now, that's not so much my focus. Um, I'm taking kind of like what I learned, working with people that have to be able to perform at a high level, and then translating that now to people that are like just living everyday lives that need mm -hmm. access to those resources. Yeah. Which no, is a little bit funner. Cause like working with fighters, they're a, they're a tough group to work with, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, some of the, some of the stories I've heard. Yeah. I, I can definitely agree with you there, but you pretty, you pretty much had the ultimate fighter series in your house, right? <laughs> you basically had, your I mean, <laughs> yeah, like we, uh, we got, I got deep into it. Like, so, for the last two and a half years, we, we were housing fighters and, and developing them on, on every level. Um, on my end, it was the nutrition, food prep, food sourcing, strength and conditioning. And then, you know, whatever I could do in the way of like mindset and lifestyle, those were other components of things that we worked on. But I lived with the fighters I slept next to the fighters. <laughs> I ate dinner with the fighters. It was, it was a, it was nuts, you know, and I'm older and they're all like in their early twenties and just wild, crazy kids. And I, I, definitely a different standard of, of living that I, I had envisioned for myself. They, they have one, you know, like <laughs> they're okay with like living in a dungeon and, yeah. training all the time but uh yeah that was a fun experience i'm glad i did it the results of like the work that i was able to do while living there was pretty amazing um the boys are fighting right now as we speak in uh in serbia mm, at the mma worlds right yeah yeah i believe christian both christian and jake made it through the first rounds of fighting yesterday and we'll be fighting again today. So it's, they're fighting once a day for the next five days. I think it's when it might be Tuesday, Wednesday, Tuesday there in wow. Serbia. So, so how, how does that tournament, how does the structure of that tournament work is because fighting once a day, every five days, what happens when you say you get dropped on day one, but still win the fight, you fight the next day with. You know what? I, I would think this? that that early in that big of a bracket, 32, 36 man bracket, that if you lost your first fight, you're probably out. Yeah. But if you won, I'm saying if you got dropped, but then still won the fight, you'll oh, fight the next day. You got dropped. Yeah. And I, then you still won the fight. And then you fight it, the next day? 
you're still fighting the next day unless like you're medically disqualified because of a concussion. Yeah. Which, oh, shit. Yeah. I know the IMM, uh, the IMMAF is like, it's a well-structured, um, legitimate organization. But I also would think though, that if somebody got dropped in one, that they'd, they'd grease them through into the next round, despite whether they were concussed or not. Mm, interesting. And you want to know, I think that too is kind of, should be on the fighter in terms of like, whether they want to take that risk or not, because being able to get to this tournament in the first place is a monumental feat. You know what I mean? Hmm. Just qualifying for worlds. Um, it's pretty freaking tough. And we're talking like a hundred plus countries competing in this event. Wow. So, yeah. so what does it take, take to qualify? Maybe someone's listening and they're looking, Hey, this could be a career path or is it even a viable career path? Is this something that can lead on to something else professionally? Or well, is this I mean, what, what we're seeing right now is, is that the, the IMMAF, the organization itself, the events that they put on, yeah, they, they are feeding athletes into the, into the bigger organizations. Uh, um, in terms of like, using that as a pathway. Yeah. It's a great amateur pathway into a very successful pro career with, and then you have to look at like the stage that you're competing on in the IMMAF, like the lights are bright there. Like mm. these events are huge. You're fighting people from different countries with a lot of like, there's just a lot more on the line than like a local amateur yeah. fight you know what i mean there's yeah, more sure. pride the, the accolades are higher like mm. um and i would think that doing that through the immaf is going to give you like equivalent pressure and reps compared to what you're going to see when you fight in like one of the bigger pro organizations yeah no for sure and what, what does it take to qualify for something like that okay um, well, it's different by country. Most countries have a state-sponsored uh, IMMAF-recognized program. So they have their own state-sponsored amateur circuit. And uh, you would compete in those events within your country, and you would rank each competition. Mm. Um, and then I, I believe some people got in by like cumulative wins and points and um and other people were uh, selected to, t to try out so we have the usfl in uh the united states so your opportunity to go to worlds or any of these like big global events for amateur mma would be to compete in local events through the usf usfl um they track your statistics and then you get invited to like the the bigger events like Pan Ams and and the different world events and then uh yeah, you can represent your country um depending on where you rank. All right, before before we go into the strength conditioning side, if someone's listening to this and is maybe interested in trying to go down this road, how do they start competing in the in the USFL? USFL, okay. So you would go to the website, I think it's Fight League dot org i'll have to look that up yeah uh and then 
the the but there's kind of a problem with that. So you would have to look for events that are sponsored by the USFL. Gotcha. And basically and just you, register to fight. Yeah, and if you couldn't do that, then I would suggest that you reach out directly to the USFL. Um John Frank or Jim Nightingale, and they could kind of guide an athlete um, in the mm, right okay. direction in terms of how to get into the organization and then compete for them. Gotcha. So well, you've obviously had a fair amount of success with, with athletes, with the ultimate fight athletes you had in your yes. in your house there, your yes. little reality TV show, show at home. So do you yes. want to dive into some of your, your training philosophy kind of how you prepared these guys for the for these events and eventually obviously how they yeah. eventually made it into this uh yeah well uh from the beginning when i first started <clears throat> excuse me working with them i i i had to maintain a perspective of like long-term development um so i'd say like the type of programming i had them on was like a slow continuous development with projecting out years and years and years um, in advance of where where they were and where we wanted them to be. So slow, continuous training. It, it wasn't a sexy program at all. Just the basic fundamentals. These are young athletes, right? Yeah. Like what I what I find often. And so they're young athletes and they're in a sport with probably the most impact and risk for injury of like any other sport aside mm. from like rugby and football and stuff like that. Like, um, every training session, something bad could happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's that much risk involved. Um, and I had to factor that into how I was going to develop and execute the programming on my end to make sure that like, they were getting continuously stronger, that their conditioning was developing, body composition and such, um, slowly over time without like increasing their, their risk of injury. Yeah. No, that, that, that's, so a, that's a, a slow, good continuous program with, with very little peaking, to be honest, not through me. Uh, most of the peaking for their conditioning was managed through doing the actual thing. Yeah. Uh, something that you talk about, right. In, uh, mm -hmm. in some of your articles, like, uh, because the reality is, is like when it comes to like conditioning and peaking an athlete, um, for, 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 for martial arts, it, it's, it's, it's not that practical to try to do it through like training in the gym. Like you, they really need to be using those muscles and their body, uh, in the way that they're going to be using it in their event with varying intensities um, and, and, and volumes and such, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. For getting back to the podcast, I want to let you know, there's a link down in the description for the sweet sounds of fighting underground community. You can get all the help you need for your combat sports training. You get every single sweet sounds of fighting training program online course, and you get access to a range of coaches within the private discord community. So go check that out and back to the podcast. Excellent. These guys were working full-time as well, were they? Most of the athletes I trained, trained full-time. Oh, they trained full-time. Okay. Very few of them worked. A few of them were in school. Some of them had like little odd jobs that they would do, like DoorDash. But 
the last two and a half years, I had about 15 to 25 full-time training athletes. Wow. Okay. So what, what, what a typical time. week? Oh, gotcha. So what did a typical yeah. training training week look like, say Monday to uh, Saturday or Sunday? So it started, okay, so uh, every day they, they would train. Uh, it was a two-hour block of training. Um, Tuesdays and Thursdays were dedicated to just recovery work. So breathing, mobility, a um, little bit of yoga, mostly mobility. Monday, Wednesday, Friday was like uh, structured like a push-pull with a little bit of conditioning. Uh, I always did um, an hour of like accessory work with them before we got into like their programming. Um, so Monday, Wednesday, Friday for the two hour block, they started each session with movement flows, breathing, tissue mobilization, sometimes general and specific. Then we would go into like pull-ups and deadlift and then a little bit of a conditioning round and then a structured cool down. That was like the nuts and bolts of the programming. Nice. Okay. So, so you do that, that hour in the beginning. So the actual strength work itself, how many exercises would you have in there? Would it just be say pull-up and deadlift and then the conditioning, like kind of low uh, volume that way? No, no, no. I, I had it like all laid out based on where they were yeah. at with, with their in, in, individual difference in, in terms of like, where they were at with their strength, like, yeah, um, the sets and reps were different for each of the athletes. Gotcha. How many they were performing? Um, I used the kind of the older OPEX model, and yeah. some of the stuff that they were able to like draw from early CrossFit and just looking at other sports to create like a blueprint for the benchmarks based on body type that you would want to see. So I was monitoring like every one of their lifts and then trying to get them to a reasonable percentage of where you would want them to peak professionally within the period of time that I had them. Um, and the programming was adaptive though, because like as much as I would want to create a, a program for them that was laid out, that was progressing them each week, that just wasn't a reality with yeah with their training load. So, like, say I wanted them to do a percentage of their one rep max uh, on a Friday, and that's what it called for in the programming. Like, uh, that rarely ever – it rarely ever worked that I was able to do it, like, that specifically. Yeah. Um, because it was hard to factor in, like, all the other things that they were doing and, like, how they were actually going to feel when they showed up for the session. Yeah, for sure. That that's always a thing that sometimes just straight programs don't allow you to do is have that variability because you never know. You know, if you had a hard session on Thursday, <laughs> you come Friday and that that's just not happening. Whatever's on there. Yeah, and when I had when I had them on a program where they were progressively loading week by week at percentages of numbers, like maybe targets or stuff that we had already tested. When I had them on structured program, like programming like that, and I pushed them through it, um, I noticed like a negative effect in a lot of them in like the rates of recovery. Um, nobody ever got outright injured, but they did experience a lot of tissue stress 
that I just felt was unnecessary, an unnecessary risk. Another thing that I really worked hard at with the programming that I developed for them. Excuse me. Was trying to ensure that I wasn't pushing them so hard each session mm. that they were sore. Yeah. So, and That's- that I had to like monitor session by session and, and athlete by athlete. Like, yeah, for it sure. It was all over the place. But I had <laughs> benchmarks and targets and we were working towards those for each one of them in, a, in, an, in an adaptive, continuous way, you know? It wasn't. What, what- Sorry. Say, what, what did the uh, what did the conditioning look like at the end of the, most of those days? Did that change based on on the day or the athlete throughout that? Throughout the that conditioning would change kind of based on the period of where they were at. So it was mostly okay. like long aerobic conditioning for a lot of them. Mm. Very little intensity in my programming, knowing that like on any given day they would get more than enough intensity through their. Uh, through their live rounds, which almost every single one of their training sessions ended with live rounds. And, and, uh, there wasn't a lot of coordination on my end with the other coaches in terms of knowing like, Oh, this athlete's going to spar at this intensity this day. And, Mm, and so that's frustrating. Really. I tried to build up just that long aerobic base to keep them healthy. Cause at the end of the day, for those short bouts of intensity that they're going to need in their fights, they do need like a long, a, a big engine, you know, in terms of metabolic yeah. conditioning. Yeah, for sure. So, so what did their, what did their technical training schedule look like? Because obviously you mentioned they did live rounds at the end of their, most of their technical sessions. Were they training Monday through like Saturday once a day with their technical Some of them training? were training seven days a week. Some of them were training six days a week. Some of them, uh, most of the guys that were, were training full time, um, they were putting in like five to six hours a day of training. Holy uh, shit. And, and I didn't always know like what their technical rounds looked like. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and you know, some of it too is, uh, depending on where that athlete was with their specific skill sets, there might be, more boxing training or kickboxing or yeah or wrestling or you know so yeah i i wish i i would have had the opportunity to like meet with all the coaches and like present my end of the programming and then have that come together with like their technical rounds and when and where they had intensity but that just wasn't a reality of what i was able to do um was that a was that because of the coaches that were there that you couldn't do that or? Um, we just didn't really talk a lot, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it was, well, I worked with, originally I worked with the team out of 10 planet, right? Yeah. Well, I didn't, I didn't train at, at 10 planet. I, I met a few people and then I ended up getting referred into this position where I'm coaching all these athletes. And that's yeah. how, that's how everything built up. Um, so I wasn't actually on the team and meeting the coaches daily, or I would just oh, see true. them at events. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, I understand what, what you, what you have to go through with stuff like that and trying try essentially having to guess, you know, what's going to happen when, and, and just not do too much where you're going to over push the guys 
so that when they go to technical training or they come from technical training that you're not adding yes. so much more on their plate that you know it pushes them over the edge yeah uh yeah i definitely <laughs> had to work with that a lot yeah that, that's that, that's frustrating but that within the within the weeks itself so they were doing five to six hours of technical training and then the extra training with you on top of that or was that five maybe to six the hours five to six that? would be total training for the day okay. yeah yeah okay. and a lot of to be honest with you and this is the reality of just what i was presented with in like their states of development a lot of like the strength and conditioning work i did do was based on recovery because if you look at martial arts and mma as a sport like it's a movement-based sport right and for a lot of these athletes to perform at the highest level and acquire new skill they need a lot of mobility right in their bodies uh to prevent injuries and just to create space for them to move technically within so that first hour of every session to every hour and a half was just completely dedicated to like making improvements in that space because i don't know what your experience is with like movement dysfunction but i found in my practice that eliminating um those barriers to movement automatically translates to them performing better at a specific thing without even training that specific thing yeah, what, what kind of things were you doing then within that alpha the mobility? Uh, basically, <laughs> like, you're familiar with the FRC program, right? Uh, somewhat. Okay. What's your understanding of FRC? In terms of, uh, like, it's like joint, uh, full joint yeah. movement, basically? Yeah. I mean, so that was that was the nuts and bolts of what we were working on. Stretching, breathing, um, tractioning out tissues with different tools like bands and such and gotcha sometimes rolling stuff out of tissues but really uh and then so trying to open up more movement space and then using movements to like keep that space Mm. so like if your ankles are tight we mobilize the ankle and then let's put you in a position where you can actually use the ankle mobility so like a squat for example yeah it I, I wish like I could say that like there was a lot of like technical work going on. It was very basic. These are young mm-hmm. athletes, you know, so. Um, that, that's a good point you make there too. Cause a lot of people will think, okay, um, whatever I'm restricted here. So I'm going to do whatever it is to get more range of motion, but then they don't do anything to really cement that in. They kind of just, Oh, I, I can get a little further and whatever it is I'm doing, but they're not loading it. Like you mentioned there, for example, every, every slot, single one yeah. of those positions has to be loaded in order to, in order for that to actually like work for yeah. you. Yeah. People I think a lot of people get confused and, and thinking mm-hmm. that like great flexibility and range of motion is going to e- equal like your ability to produce force in that space. And, and yeah. that's just not, that's just not how it works. <laughs> Unfortunately, otherwise it'd be very easy. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So, so along with all the MMA stuff, you're obviously training yourself in jujitsu. Are you implementing any of these things with your own training? Yeah, completely. Um, I, I mean, the way my programming is structured now is it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. So I've actually, you know, uh, incorporated cold work 
mm-hmm. which I, the benefits have been just amazing in terms of like my ability to recover. So cold work sauna, breath training and mobility every day. Uh, super light strength and conditioning. Like I'm, I'm 42. Like my rate of recovery right now is, is, is it's not what it was when I was younger. So I'm just trying to get progressively stronger each week. Yeah. And then I'm using the mats to develop my, my conditioning. But gotcha. I do do a fair amount of like zone two work each week, like walking, light jogging, running, hiking, um, to keep building my aerobic conditioning and keep my system healthy. Nice. Do you want to dive into, dive into some of your breath work? What are you doing there? Do you have any like protocols that you use there or progressions? I, I mean, I'm using pretty much right now, I'm using two different systems. So the box, box breath for relaxation. Mm-hmm. Do you want to maybe so explain that, that one? Four, eight, nine, four. So it's a breathe in for four. I mean, what we're looking to do is like lower the rate of respiration, right? And inspiration, um, which, uh, ends up increasing our CO2 tolerance. That increase in CO2 tolerance allows us to carry more oxygen, thus resulting in improved uh, aerobic output, but also tapping into the nervous system to be able to modulate periods of like excitability and then resting and digesting and relaxing. Um, so the box press to rest um, and create states of recovery a better state for recovery. Um, and then, uh, I'm really still just diving deeper into like the fire breath from Kundalini yoga, the, the Tumo. That, Interesting. Uh, yeah. Do you want, do you want to go, go into a bit of that? I know nothing about that. Are you serious? Okay. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I want to say like, I've been practicing this stuff for like five to six years. Yeah. And I'm still learning every single day about how these things work and and affect the body. But this is what the research is showing is that these different breathing sequences can potentially give people more control over their physiology. Uh, Obviously, I don't want to say his name. I'm not going to say his name, but we do know a guy, right, that's out there that developed the system Mm -hmm. and uh, they studied his ability to thermoregulate consciously. That's proven control his immune system. Um, And I think there were some other things that they were able to prove. Um, Yeah. And so that's an example of like what can be done. And um, I mean, I don't want to like go into another space of spirituality, but I mean, Breathing is like fundamentally the one thing that we have to do continuously. Otherwise we die. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's the source of how we live. Um, it's the air, it's the oxygen we take in. And, uh, I, I, five to six years ago when I picked this up, I noticed that one, I didn't breathe in a way that was healthy, held my breath all the time, had no control of my breathing, had no diaphragmatic control. Um, and then I started seeing that in other people and athletes mm-hmm. I worked with. And so I found this as like an easy way to actually help people improve their performance was just getting them into very simple breathing. Just be conscious of your breathing to start with and then going deeper, inhaling in through the nose and out through the mouth and then playing with the different sequences 
like Tumo, for example, which is a rapid inhale, exhale through the nose, ideally, or in through the nose, out through the mouth. And then mm. using this to actually, uh, for performance. Okay. Uh, uh, like from the oxygen advantage, for example. Yeah. Are you familiar? Yeah. So teaching mm-hmm. athletes how to control their breathing while they're performing. Um, and then like before and after. So the guys I worked with had a charging program that they would do before their events. And mm-hmm. this is something that we practiced every day in their training. Um, and then they would have different breathing sequences to perform in the event. Mm. Some of them to generate force. <clears throat> most most of the breathing to just, I wouldn't say stay relaxed or calm per se, but to stay conscious and to keep fueling their system with oxygen. Yeah. And then recovery sequences in between rounds. And we had gotcha. a lot of success with people doing this. And, and I've had a lot of success with myself utilizing this, these breathing sequences, um, um, in my own training. Did you know you can represent sweet arts of fighting while you're training with more than just a membership? We also have rash cards and shorts. If you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see that we have the sweet arts of fighting 2.0 shorts. And we also have the sweet arts of fighting short and long sleeve rash guard. There is another design coming soon, but you can get those on X Marshall. Dot com and you can go down the description and you can find that and back to the podcast do you want to maybe go into some examples of those sequences like for example before you're charging one before the fight the between round recovery one and then the, okay. the one after yeah so the charging what we would do is to get the nervous system fired up it would be it depended on the athlete because believe it or not charging the diaphragm rapidly Uh, That's going to be dependent on practice. So some of the athletes would be five to six sets of 30 breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth fast with a static hold at the end of each set and two to three long diaphragmatic, diaphragmatic rib cage chest recovery breaths uh, in between each charging round. So we would do this ahead of the event to improve their ability to carry oxygen, to get them into a state mentally where they are like focused. Um, it's almost like a mini meditation for them yeah. to like do the breathing before they even start moving. So that would be the charging routine. And then it would be long continuous breathing depending on how much rate of force they were producing in the fight. Right. Just, taking air in, keeping the mouth closed, um, and then bearing down when they're generating a ton of force and power, and then going back to that breathing. And then in between rounds, we would go to the box breathing or just the slow diaphragm ribcage chest. Yes. Okay. And, you know, I'm still, like, figuring this all out, like how it works, why why it works. Yeah. And most of what I know now is, is that it does work. Yeah. So but, it's funny because I had in, in Romania, so I have been exposed to this in Romania. We had a, uh, I think she was a sports psychologist come, come and was teaching this, that exact thing, the charging and the recovery breathing to the players. Yeah. There's not so a lot had, of yeah, literature okay. 
written about this applied to MMA. And so mm. um, I basically everything I've been studying is like old yoga yeah. texts. <laughs> yeah. And, and then I read about, okay, so like there's a specific system in the yogic text that it says that it helps within the body. And I find that thing and then I pair it with the MMA. Mm. And, uh, and then I'm always experimenting with it to see uh, yeah. if there's a better or a worse way. But the, the charging, the continuous conscious breathing with learning how to not really Valsalva, but you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, Is similar to Hicks and Gracie in, in that old documentary? Yes. Uh, what, choke? Is it choke? Yeah. I think it is choke. Yeah, but to be able to generate force and then to get them into the most relaxed, calm state possible um, in between rounds. And uh, there's a group actually in California that really kind of expanded my awareness to this. Uh, are you familiar with uh, Underwater Torpedo League? No. Or Deep End like underwater Fitness? Hockey? It's underwater <laughs> it's underwater rugby. No way. It's, so it's underwater it's underwater rugby with a torpedo that they throw yeah. with with grappling. What the Yes. <laughs> you gotta look it up, but okay. uh my and you know I wish there was like more scientific technical specifics that I could throw out there about the breathing, but like from the people that I learned it from and this, I mean, I, there, there is stuff that people can go look up, like if they really need that. But from the people that I learned it from these, these were appliers of it. Yeah. Like in, in, uh, in under high stress situations, like, uh, the UTL guys, the guys from deep end fitness, they were, uh, former, uh, Marine special forces. Mm-hmm. And so they, they use these simple techniques to stay relaxed and calm um, under insanely mm. high pressure. Okay. So I would but, check them out. Yeah. So wh where would you recommend if someone wanted to learn more about the breathing? They go just there or are there other places? Well, they the, can go? there's the Oxygen Advantage, which would be yeah. one book to read. Um, there's a Russian system called the Buteyik Method. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about. They reference that in the oxygen advantage, right? The, okay. The I yeah. think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kundalini Yoga, mm -hmm. um, they have a free educational site online that you can go. Okay. I think it's through 3HO, which is like the main Kundalini Yoga group. Um, and then self-experimentation. Like, it's one thing to, like, read academic research. Mm -hmm. And then, like, say, okay, this is a great tool that I want to apply to the people that I'm working with. But I think self-experimentation before you start working on it with other clients is super important. Yeah. Like, yeah. making progress in that space on your own and then implementing it into your programming is, is a responsible way to, like, use it. Um, I definitely yeah. think it's a game changer as a tool for d helping athletes, like, really understand their physiology better and how to use that under mm. pressure. Yeah, I need to do a deep dive into this stuff too. But do you ever have fighters with issues that can't breathe well through their nose? So this breathing technique doesn't quite 
do what it is. Yeah, and that's so great. Like they can't breathe well through their nose. Um, There is some evidence to show that like actually working through the exercises can help with some of the remodeling of like the sinus way and opening up more air, their ability to take in more air over time. But yes, like if they've had breaks and such, and then they can't get air in, then obviously we have to use mouth breathing as well. Mm, okay. Yeah. Cause I, there's a, a wife's friend, she, she got to the sinus surgery or something where they go up the nose and they clear out all the sinuses. Apparently that was game changing. And I'm like, shit, maybe I need to go try, try to do that at some point. Interesting. Uh, a surgery. Yeah. yeah it's, it's like not too invasive. I think they go up the nose and they just they oh, clear out all the sinuses. Just to clear it all out. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Interesting. But practicing the breathing itself you mm. start to notice that it, it does it that it's actually working that system yeah um, and starts to really open up your space to breathe yeah I, i'm i'm so i'm so bad at implementing a lot of the stuff with myself just because i'm lazy <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i need i need i need to i need to because yeah there is value there is value like so many people are uh, doing this stuff and seeing you know, benefits. I mean, it's, it's basically meditation, right? As you mentioned, it, so it it's, is. It's I mean, you can do. At the end of the day, that's what it really is, it's, and uh, it's so beneficial for everything else in your life, and mm. keeping you staying focused, and you know, more discipline, and and then being able to relax when you want to relax, and then being able mm. to stimulate yourself through your breathing when when you want to raise your your level of excitation. You know. It's, uh, are you are you ever using meditation app like guided meditation apps then for this stuff? I am not using any guided meditation apps. I'm I'm just experimenting on my like own. Solo. And, yeah. No I, sounds. I, no input. Just silence. Uh. Well, I mean, I I do my breathing and then I do my cold exposure. I do my breathing for like twenty to thirty minutes straight. Wow. And maybe I include like some different mobilizations. In between, I've also found too that uh, it's very interesting that you can use these different techniques with different postures and get slightly different results in your mm-hmm. body. Like yeah, dive into that a little. Uh, like being able to use the diaphragm to help assist in opening the hips, like mm. uh, like a pigeon pose, for example, and then charging the diaphragm in that position. Um, once your diaphragm actually starts to get strong too, you start to see like how much actual movement that it creates in the body, like specifically mm. in the hips. It's crazy. Mm, okay. Uh, I need to yeah. do that. Uh, it's, it's similar to, to almost instead of holding a, say a stretch for time, you hold it for a certain number of breaths, right? That's breaths. Sim- similar, yeah. yeah. And then you're actually like fueling that activity, right? With, the nourishment it needs in the way of oxygen to be able to, for those tissues to like remodel and get stronger and, or whatever, relax and, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it is that you're trying to do. Yeah. Nice. And, and now you, you've moved to, you've moved from Texas to Seattle. What do you, what have you got in the works now in terms of uh, career wise? What are you uh, starting to create? Um, well, I've got my clothing brand, which should be going live sometime in March, politely nice. violent. So, you know, uh, I've got that rash guards and athletic wear through politely violent that's coming online. 
Um, I'm doing a little bit of strength and conditioning work with remote with remote clients. Yeah, uh, I need to get better, you know, on the digital end, like you are, like <laughs> getting online and actually, you know, building that out. Um, yeah. And then I've got the gym opening in sixty to ninety days. So. Seattle nice. Grappling Academy and Village of Wolves, Seattle, which is pretty exciting, and that's going to be like my focus for till I get till I get that stabilized and and running the way I want it to run. Nice. So if anyone's in the Seattle area and looking for a place to train jiu-jitsu, yeah. you need to come along for sure. Yeah, Seattle Grappling Academy, or at this point, come to Marcelo Alonso BJJ. Nice. There we yeah. go. I think that's pretty much everything, uh, a lot of all the topics that we've covered there, but do you want to maybe uh, let everyone know where they can find and follow you, Nick, and, and see what you're up to? Yeah, you can reach me at Flow Performance Coaching on Instagram, and that'd probably be the best place to reach out to me at this point. Perfect. I'll throw that down in the description anyway, so if you're watching on YouTube, Spotify, whatever, it'll be down there. But thanks for coming on, Nick. I really appreciate it. Thank you.